Okay, there we go. You know, one of our deepest needs in, uh, in the Christian life is intimacy with God. Right? We were made for friendship. We were made with, uh, for fellowship with God. That's how God created us. In fact, that is the only true source of contentment in our lives because we were made in His image. And what that means, being made in His image, is that we can only find true contentment and true joy in Him. Right? Remember what God said when He spoke about Jesus Christ as Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I... Well pleased. God, the triune Godhead, finds their truest source of joy and contentment within the Godhead, within that fellowship. So he created us in his image, so that is where we're going to find our contentment and our joy. So God designed us, and that's why deep in the hearts, people are seeking for, uh, for contentment, but never find it because they look for it in the wrong places. And so for those of us who are believers, we want to know him, or at least we should want to know him and see him. And so we're searching for the place where earth touches heaven, the place where we can go and we can meet with God. That's the heart's desire. Now, we live in a crazy, mixed-up world. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, there's a lot of instability, a lot of insecurity. And so what we need, simply put, is uh, we need, uh, what we need is God. We need the kind of relationship with Him that provides direction, that provides meaning for life. That's how God created us. So we have to ask the question, how do we connect with Him? So I want us to look this week and next week on this whole issue. And this week, I want to look on a passage that, for a lot of people, they would look at it and breeze over it and then move on. And that's Exodus chapter 26. Because in Exodus chapter 26, we have a detailed, uh, the detailed instructions for setting up God's tabernacle, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so when you read through chapter 26, it's got a lot of these details of how to put this tabernacle together. And it's, it doesn't make for exciting reading. In fact, I believe it's the kind of Bible passage that most people skim if they even read it at all. For some people, it's probably the pages are probably stuck together there because it's really not that exciting. right? Architectural plans are necessary for a building project. But they're not fun reading. It's not something I would recommend. You know, if, you, if, you're, if your house is being, uh, if you see an, archite an architect and you want to read something, he says, here, read my architectural plans. It's not something you would take and say, oh, I'm going to enjoy this. You just don't. We just don't read those things. But this is no ordinary building. This is no ordinary tabernacle, right? It's a place where I believe earth touched heaven, or I, could, I should say heaven came down to earth. Because this is the first earthly residence where the heavenly king was going to dwell amongst his people. The Hebrew word for tabernacle, mishkam, comes from the Hebrew word that means to dwell, to live, to set up home, if you will. So the tabernacle was a place where God lived, and thus its construction is going to reveal things about God and our relationship with Him. And that's why I wanted to look at this section. And so this tabernacle shows what, what was required for those who are sinners to meet with God. To be with Him. To experience His presence. And that's why I believe the plans here uh, that uh, God gives through Moses are so important. And that's why I believe they have to be given careful study. So yes, sometimes it's kind of hard to read the details, but God gives it for a reason. It's not to put you to sleep, but it's to help us understand who He is and how we approach this holy God. 
And so God started showing Moses the design for this tabernacle back in chapter 25. Uh, we don't have time to go through that, but that's where he told them uh, what went inside. And he began in chapter 25 by telling them about the ark. And then from there he built out and he went to the table that holds the, the, the bread. And then there's the lampstand. But he begins with the ark and he builds out because the ark is the heart of everything that happens in Israel. Because the ark represents what? The very presence of God, right? The very presence of God. And that in itself was an awesome study, to study the ark and how it was set up and what happened with the ark and the cherubim above. Absolutely beautiful. And so he gives us that in chapter 25. And then in chapter 26, we get a description of the tabernacle itself. And not the whole complex, just the tabernacle. Remember, there's a, a whole complex attached to that, right? Outside of the tabernacle. Got that tent and that, uh, that, that, that area for um, uh, other sacrifices and washings. It's, it's huge. But in chapter 26, we get the, the, the tabernacle. The, the, the complex itself, not the whole area. And as God gave his instructions for the building, as I said, he worked from the inside out. And uh, of course, with the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Holy of Holies. And that was crucial because everything, everything in the life of Israel revolved around the Holy of Holies. Everything. And that's why God started there and built out when he gave the instructions. Because it all begins with him. Right? And when you look at the, the Holy of Holies and then the Holy Place and then the, uh, the whole area, the complex, and the, uh, everything that's involved, you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, they were around this whole area. Three, to the, uh, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, west, and north. And they surrounded. And every time they went out, two tribes would go, the tabernacle, and then the others. They would follow. But the tabernacle would always, the ark would always be in the middle. And Israel, the entire nation, would be around that, that place. In fact, it was set up in such a way that no matter where you were in, the, in Israel, when they were um, um, going through the, uh, the, the wilderness wanderings, no matter where they were, they could see that tabernacle. They could see the presence of God. They could see the smoke from the sacrifices. So they, all, they were always aware that God was present. And so he worked from his way, uh, from, uh, from inside uh, uh, with the furniture, and he built out. Now, <clears throat> to understand the tabernacle, we need to learn as much as we can about how it was built. And so this is going to require patience. And I want to remind you of this passage that 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, including chapter 26, with the details, all Scripture is God-breathed and it is useful. So yes, even these places in Scripture that have names or here that have all these little details, they are useful. Right? So we have to stu study it and think about it. So as we look at chapter 26, I'm not going to take time to read through it all. And I do want to break it down. And in the first six verses, God told Moses how to make the tabernacle proper, the tent for his dwelling. Right? And as, we, as, as you begin to study the details and how it's put together, the first thing and the foremost thing we learn is the holiness of God. When you look at how he put this tabernacle together, what is emphatic is God's holiness, God's majesty. That's what he wants to emphasize. And when you look at it, there were four layers to this tabernacle. I mean, this is not just a little tent that they put together. There are four layers. But what's really amazing about this, when you look at these four layers, is that God 
put the most unattractive curtains on the outside and that which is most beautiful on the inside. And it's, it's interesting because hardly anybody saw the inside, right? But you look on the outside, there's really nothing that you look at and say, wow, that's beautiful. In fact, uh, Old Testament scholar John Davis, who's done a lot of archaeological studies, he said, from a purely aesthetic point of view, the tabernacle would not be considered a thing of beauty, at least not from the outside. So if you were to look at this thing, you'd think, okay, just another tent. That's what it would look like. But see, that's what God does. He often cloaks His glory in simplicity, doesn't He? We see that again and again. In, in 1 Corinthians, we learn that he, he shows His power in weakness. He shows His wisdom through foolishness. Right? He's amazing. And think about how He cloaked His majesty in flesh. Jesus, God Himself, took on human flesh so that when you looked upon Jesus, you didn't see stunning glory and majesty. You just saw another person. In fact, Isaiah himself said that when you looked at him, he had no form of majesty that he would take notice of him and no beauty that we would desire him. So when you looked at the person of Jesus, he was not this Mr. Handsome, you know, that you look at him and say, wow, look how great he looks. Just another guy. Cloaked majesty. That's how God did it. Again and again and again. <clears throat> and so to come to the tabernacle is to come to the holy God hidden under the veil of ordinary. You'd walk by and look at the, the, the tabernacle. If you didn't know what was on the inside, you wouldn't think it was anything special. God does that purposely. Now the innermost layer of the tabernacle was made of, you read through these first six verses, ten sheets of fabric measuring approximately six feet by 42 feet. And they were sewn together in sets of five, so they had these two enormous curtains, if you will, and they were joined by 50 clasps. And they were draped over a frame to make a roof, and that would be the inner um, uh, layer, made of fine linen. It was, uh, again, scholars say white, off-white. I don't think it really matters that much. Uh, they were adorned with colorful blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and um, they were had embroidered in them the images of cherubim. Now remember who the cherubim are. They are the uh, uh, super angelic beings that are around the throne. So this inner layer all around had cherubim embroidered in them. Okay, When you look in Scripture, you look at the, the scenes of heaven, for example, in Isaiah 6, or you go to Revelation, and they get this vision of the throne in heaven that's always described with the seraphim and cherubim around the throne, right? And even the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what was sitting on top of the Ark? The two cherubim, right? And so when you go, if you were to go into the tabernacle, you look around and that's what you see embroidered in the curtain all the way around, these cherubim. What do you think would, comes to mind when these priests would go in and see this? They're thinking about the, 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 the throne. They're thinking about, man, whoa, this is holy ground here. You know, this is not a place where you come and just do whatever you want. So that was on the uh, inside. And then this was covered with a layer of wool, which then was covered with uh, another layer of um, animal skins, or two layers of animal skins. You see that in chapter uh, verses 7 through 14. Uh, it was made, the second layer was made of goat's hair. 
And I, I learned that goat's hair is very sturdy. In fact, uh, even today in Middle Eastern nomads, they still use that today because it's a very sturdy um, linen. And so the woolen curtains were slightly larger than the one underneath so that they sit on top. And then they covered that curtain of linen uh, with two other layers. Uh, this, the, they were made of leather. Uh, there were the ram skins, and then there was the skin of the sea cows. Those were water resistant. So therefore, when you were to look at this tabernacle with the four layers, there is no way that you could peek inside because there's no crack. Okay, It was sealed off. And it was protected from the weather. Should it rain, or if the sun beats down, it's protected because of these layers. And so there's a total of four layers when you think of the tabernacle. And then, of course, in verses 15 through 29, uh, they needed poles that's going to hold all of this up. And so God told Moses to construct a sturdy frame that's going to hold up these, these um, uh, wrappings. So you have the upright frames that uh, held up by these pillars, and these pillars rested on silver pedestals, two per column. So they sort of built this, and then they had cross pieces. So it, it, you could take these apart easily, and you could put them back together easily. And God did that purposely, and it was very sturdy, but he did it purposely because, of course, they were going to travel in the wilderness, and they had to take it down and pick it up, take it down and pick it up, right? And so God put it together, or God told them to put it together this way very clearly. And so it's over this interlocking framework that all these tent curtains were draped. And the roof was, of course, flat. But one person said that when you look at it, it was, uh, it was similar. If you want to get a, a picture of it, think of a circus tent. The only difference is that a circus tent goes up. But when you look at a circus tent with the ropes uh, pulled back and held up, it's something similar to that, only the tabernacle had four layers, whereas a circus tent does not. But it's something similar to that with a flat roof. Right? And so it was pegged to the ground, and thus it could be moved from place to place. So God made it in such a way that it was flexible to be moved. And that was important. Now, once Moses knew how to make this main tent... God told him what to put inside. When you look at verses 31, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 31 to 35, he talks about the veil in verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of skillful workmen. Right? So the curtain described here is the veil that divided the tabernacle into two rooms. Right? So the tabernacle is two rooms. Think of it that way. And it sealed off the most holy place. So the Levites and the, the priests that would go into the first room, they'd go and do their, their thing, change out the bread and so forth. They would look and they would see that there was a, a veil there that closed off the Holy of Holies. They were not allowed to look into the Holy of Holies. Right? That was very dangerous. And so the whole tabernacle was made up of these two rooms with that veil. Now, the tabernacle itself was made up, if you were to look at it, it was 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. Okay, so it wasn't that big, 15 by 45. The, holy, the, the first room, the holy place, they call it, was a rectangle of 15 feet by 30. Okay, that's where you have the table, the, the, the presents, the, the bread of presents and so forth. That's the first room, 30 by 45. Connected to that was the Holy of Holies, 
or the most holy place. And that was a cube, 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, and 15 feet high. So it was a 15-foot cube. That was the Holy of Holies. And, of course, what separated was this um, uh, veil, the screen, if you will. And uh, that's where they put the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, the other furniture was on the, the, the next section. And then, finally, God told Moses how to make the flap that covered the doorway in verses 36 through 37. And this curtain hung across the, t uh, the, the entrance, made of fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And so when you look at all of the details that are given, it gives us a fair idea of what the tabernacle looked like, but it doesn't answer all of the questions. That's why when you, you do some research on this, you look at different books, people have different drawings of what they think it looks like. But we don't know exactly what it was, right? And so uh, there's some details there that we just don't have. It's, uh, and, and the only one that actually knew what it was supposed to look like was Moses. Because remember, when Moses was on the mountain, God actually showed him what the tabernacle was to look like. So Moses knew mentally what it was to look like. So he had these directions, but he also knew what it was to look like. And he guided the process of them building this tabernacle. All right. Now, the reason why we study the tabernacle today is not so that we can draw pictures and, and, and build an exact replica. Many people have done that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. That, 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 that's fine. It's helpful. But the reason why we study the tabernacle is to learn <clears throat> what the tabernacle teaches us about knowing God. Because that's what the tabernacle was about. It wasn't just another tent. God set it up in such a way so that they would know who he was and how to approach him. And that's why we must study it, because we see that there's a transfer now into the New Testament. And so the question we ask is, why did God tell Moses to set up a tent, and why did he tell him to do it this way? Uh, another Old Testament scholar, Vern Poitras, he wrote a book, The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses. He writes, we must try to understand the law of Moses within its original historical context, as God gave it to the Israelites. We need to try to place ourselves in the position of an Israelite in the time of Moses, or in the position of Moses himself. What would they think about the tabernacle? What could they have legitimately discerned about its significance? And I think this is a very important point, because too often people approach the Old Testament from a 21st century perspective. We try to read our culture into it. And when we do that, we will mess up every time. So if we're going to understand the tabernacle, we need to try to understand it from how the Israelites understood it thousands of years ago when they were there. Because that's how God gave it to them. That's what God intended. So we have to begin by studying the tabernacle on its own terms, not on the terms of today. Okay, Not on 21st century or 20th century understanding. Now one of the main things that God wanted his people to see was that the tabernacle was a piece of heaven on earth. That's a connection. This is a piece of heaven on earth. This was obvious, because that's where God was going to have his presence. In fact, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God said to Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Okay, So they're going to build this tabernacle, because this is where God is going to dwell among them. Heaven is where God is. So if God dwells in that tabernacle, that's God's presence. So that's one of the main things that the tabernacle teaches. 
And so <clears throat> when God came to dwell amongst the people, he brought heaven with him. And again, it's confirmed by the way it was made. And of course, in Exodus 25, as I mentioned earlier, you have the Ark of the Covenant, right? That represents the, 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 the very throne of God. And so, uh, especially with the cherubim on it and then cherubim all around, when the high priest went into that uh, Holy of Holies once a year, he was, it was overwhelming. It's, it's stunning to him because what he sees is a replica of what's in heaven. The angels all around and God sitting above the cherub. Okay, it's just, it's, it's breathtaking. It's overwhelming. See, we hear it so often that we don't think about it, but put yourself in the, in, in, in the shoes of the high priest who went in and absolutely saw this. I mean, he would just be like, whoa, stunned. And that's why he had to enter, and we'll see later, he had to enter with a sacrifice. And so you have these royal attendants, the cherubim, in the walls as well as on the Holy of Holies. And they, uh, they when you look at heaven, uh, glimpses of heaven, we see that they are around the throne. And they, are, they call them like guards. God, God doesn't mean guards. It's just that they are around the throne. They're the attendants around the throne room. Um, and so they were woven into these, these curtains. So when the high priest entered, he knew that he is coming to the very presence of the most holy God. Thus, there would be a fear, there would be an awe, there would be a reverence because of who he's, uh, uh, who he's coming before. And that's the reason why God took such great care to make sure that Moses built the tabernacle according to his exact specifications. He didn't say, ah, you can fudge a little bit here and fudge a little No, it has to be exactly this way because it represents where I dwell. There has to be absolute perfection. And that's why it took so long to do it. And so even though the structure was made of wood, metal, and cloth, it was a copy of something in heaven. In fact, the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews calls it, it calls the sanctuary a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Hebrews 8.5 says, this, uh, uh, when describing it, it says, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Repeating what God told Moses. And so as the cherubim helped to show, the tabernacle was an earthly building designed to teach heavenly realities. And of course, at the heart of it was what? The Holy of Holies. So the tabernacle is a picture of that throne room, and at the very heart was God himself. Isn't it interesting? <clears throat> I know for me, when I deal with uh, people who have passed on, I deal with the family. Say, I can't wait to go. I know that when I die, I'm going to go there. I'm going to see my mom and my dad and my family and so forth. But isn't it interesting that when you look at Scripture's view of heaven, every time somebody gets a glimpse of heaven, what's the first thing they see? They see the throne. No one, no one says, "Oh, I saw so and so." Oh, and I saw so and so. They're not. It's not even in their minds. They're not looking for family because they're so overwhelmed at what they see. They're stunned and shocked. Remember Isaiah? He fell on his face. You go to the book of Revelation when John went to heaven. It says he fell as though he were a dead man. He passed out because he saw the throne. And he who sat on the throne, whoa, whoa. You got the angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. And everybody all around shouting, glory be to God. 
I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says, and I saw my cousin Joe over there. And my Aunt Ruth was over there too. And yet that's how we look at heaven. I'm going to go there and I'm going to be with my family. Yes, it's true. But that's peripheral. That's nothing. You're going to be with the King of the universe. The Holy, Holy, Holy One. That's heaven. And that's what this tabernacle was to represent. You come to this tabernacle. You're coming before the very Holy One of the universe. This is not playtime. This is serious stuff. So when we get to heaven, when you think of heaven, please understand, heaven is not a family um, reunion, although we will be there together. No, this is going to be all about the king himself. We're going to be overwhelmed and stunned. We're going to be on our faces along with the angels, shouting our praises. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. That's what we're going to be shouting. Not, hey, where's my mom? And so we have to change the way we view heaven. We have such an earthly perspective of heaven, and we miss out on it. And God wanted to make sure that these Israelites knew, when I'm in your presence, this is holy time. Okay, when you look at the tabernacle, this is how you approach me. It's not about your mom. It's not about your sister, your brother, your aunt, whoever. This is about me, God says. And that's how we have to view it. And I think too often we, don't, uh, we, we miss out on it. And so when you look at the, this tabernacle, it was the heart of Israel. And when you look at this tent, it's not something that glowed and said, whoa, it was so plain. But what makes it critical is what it represents. What does it represent? The very presence of God, just like Jesus when he came. Ordinary man. A lot of people rejected him because he was an ordinary man. But it's not his skin that makes Jesus who he is. What's significant about Jesus is that he is God, veiled in flesh. He's God. And those that saw that fell at his feet. That's how we are to see it. And so the point is not that this tabernacle some way, somehow contained God within the four walls. It's not the point. The point is that the tabernacle was set up like heaven to show that God rules both over heaven and earth. He's the sovereign ruler. And that's how we have to look at this, especially today. When we look at the history of this country, especially today with what's going on, Listen, they could say and do what they think they can say and do, but ultimately, King Jesus is still on his throne. He still rules. He still rules. Not the Democrats, not the Republicans. King Jesus sits on the throne and he reigns. That's how we have to see this. And that's what the tabernacle taught. Okay, it's not the Philistines that rule Israel. No, God rules Israel. You go into the promised land. You don't have to fear these people because God is still in their midst. He rules. And for us, our God still rules. He still rules. As dark as it looks, our God rules, period. So the tabernacle taught that God is in their midst and He still reigns. And praise God, He still reigns today. He hasn't changed. But I think one of the most difficult things for the Israelites back then, put ourselves in their shoes, is that you walk by and you see this tent, 
and you know what's inside. The Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. But they cannot look in. Think about that. I mean, that had to be hard. I know for me, as curious as I get, mm, I'd want to take a peek. <laughs> I'd want to try to just pick it up a little. I'd want to take a peek. But they would walk by and they could not look in. Everything was concealed. No one could peek in. John McKay, another scholar, writes, The description of the tabernacle leaves one last impression, that of the number of coverings and entrance curtains. Though Israel had this tremendous privilege of the divine presence in their midst, there is to be no doubt that he is the Holy One and that access to him was no easy matter, even though his palace and temple was right there at the center of their camp. Think about that. God's very presence, the Holy of Holies, was the one place in the entire world where people could actually experience God's presence. He came down to live with these people, and there was no way for them to go and see him. And that's hard. That, that would be difficult. It had limited access. There were no back doors, and there were no windows to creep in and peek. Only one way in, and that way was blocked by these uh, curtains that had the cherubim on it. God, access to God was very, very limited. Only the priest could enter into the first room when they had priestly duties to perform. But the Holy of Holies, who entered into the Holy of Holies? The high priest, once a year. Yep, once a year. You know that that had to be difficult. Mm. And so the, the limited access... It's very clear. It's very important that we understand it. And think about it. The first time we read about the cherubim was back in Genesis chapter 3. What happened back in Genesis chapter 3? There was the fall, right? And God took Adam and Eve out of the garden. Remember what he did then? He, he put the, the cherubim, he put some cherubim there to guard so they couldn't go back into the uh, garden to eat of the, um, the tree of life. You can read about that in chapter uh, 3, verse 23 and 24. So they blocked the entrance back to Eden. And so the uh, cherubim in the tapestries and the tabernacle represented something similar. And they guarded the way to God. It reminded the people, anybody that went in or tried to go in, that this place was holy ground. And so what the veil taught, both the front when you enter, and then, of course, the one that separated between the Holy of Holies, taught how reverently God's majesty must be regarded and with what seriousness he is to be approached. When they went into the first room, they had to clean themselves up. They had to bathe, they had to clean up the, the Levites, and then they go in and do their duty, and then they leave. And to go into the Holy of Holies was even more so. Why was it so serious? Because you were coming into the very presence of the Most Holy God. And the cherubim are all around uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the curtains to show that this is serious. We need to be careful how we approach God. So all of this was designed to show how supremely holy God is. We don't approach God flippantly, and that's one thing that bothers me about many so-called Christians today, how flippantly we approach God. It's like it's no big deal. But yet when I look at Scripture and I see people approach God, John passed out. Read about it in Revelation. He passed out. He fainted. Isaiah was terrified. 
How dare we come into the presence of God flippantly like it's no big deal? That's what the tabernacle was showing them, and that's what it should show us. God is pure majesty. He's pristine in his righteousness. He is just. All of that because he's holy. Absolute perfection. Therefore, if there's one thing we learn, there's many things, but if there's one thing we learn about tabernacles, that we must be careful how we approach this holy God. Because God has not changed. He is holy today just as he was back then. You think that the Israelites back then looked at the tabernacle and say, hey, I'm going to go in and take a peek. No, they were terrified. They were terrified. They wanted the Levites to do it, and then they wanted the high priest to do it. They didn't want to do it. They were terrified. They knew how serious it was. And I think today in, in our um, culture, we've lost the seriousness of it. They understood perfectly well why. Even when they came close to God, they still had to be separated from him. Because they knew he was holy, and they were not. And of course, the tabernacle, having those curtains, not only kept people out, but the tabernacle also indicated that there was a way in. Right? It wasn't sealed off. So although it closed it off, it wasn't sealed off permanently. Right? Does that make sense? All right? So there was a way in. And the way in for them was by sending in a representative. Right? And a substitute. So you have a representative, the high priest, but the high priest could not go in on his own terms. What would happen to the high priest? He would make. In fact, it's interesting when the high priest would go in, they developed a custom where they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest and put bells at the bottom. So that as he's doing his offering the sacrifice, they could hear the bells. Once the bells stopped ringing and the guy didn't come out, it's because God struck him dead, they had to pull him out because nobody was going to go in and get that dead body. They were too afraid. That's how serious this was. And so the Israelites had a substitute, right? a representative, one who had to go in and offer a sacrifice for himself first and then offer the sacrifice for the people to show how separate God is from us. And like I said, there was no back door. So the only way for unholy sinners to enter the presence of a holy God was by means of a blood sacrifice. And that's why there's so much blood sacrifice. When you think about the Holy of Holies and you think about the, that, that uh, ark, it was filled with blood. They poured the blood on top of that mercy seat. And so it was a bloody mess. People say, why so disgusting? Because that's sin. Sin is disgusting. It is putrid. It is dirty. It is evil. That's why it's so messy. Because sin is messy. But back then, the sacrifices were ongoing. Right? Uh, we read about it even in Hebrews that they offered sacrifices again. And again, and again, there's constant blood flowing. But I want us to take a look at the true tabernacle. Because the God that dwelt in the tabernacle back then is the same God who rules today. He's still the great king who sits enthroned above the cherubim in heaven. He is still the Lord of all the earth. His character has not changed. As they cried out, holy, holy, holy back then, they continue to cry out, holy, 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 today. He's the holy God who demands perfect obedience and the just God who punishes sin. Same God. He is as awesome today as he was in the days of Moses. Well, what is it that separates man from God? Sin. 
that had to be dealt with, right? So it keeps us from God. Now, there was a man in, in the Old Testament who really wanted to get closer to God, and that was King David. And in Psalm 15, I want us to look at that psalm. If you want to look at Psalm 15 with me, just very briefly. But Psalm 15, verse 1, David asks, I think, one of the most relevant questions in Scripture. Psalm 15, 1. Notice the question in verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may dwell in your sanctuary? In other words, he wanted to know, God, who could enter into your holy tabernacle? Who could enter into your presence? Right? Relevant question. God, who can come to you? And then he answers it in verses 2 through 5. Notice what he says. First, your character is to be holy. Notice he says, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. No, character is to be holy. Second, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. So your speech must be holy. Who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. So your conduct is to be holy. Who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. So your values, your value system is to be holy. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. No, your integrity is to be holy. Who lends his money without usury and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. The use of money is to be holy. And then he says, he who does these things will never be shaken. So note who could enter into the presence of God. The one whose character is holy. The one whose speech is holy, whose conduct is holy, whose values are holy, whose integrity is holy, whose use of money is holy. They are the ones who could enter into the presence of God. That's all there is to it. If we want to meet God, this is it. What's the problem? We can't do it, exactly. We can't do this. And this is why we need Jesus. If you want to understand the tabernacle clearly in the New Testament, one of the most important verses to understand this is John chapter 1, verse 14. You can just jot it down and look at it later. Because it helps us to understand the tabernacle very clearly. Because in 114 of the Gospel of John, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, dwelt. Literally, if you were to translate it literally from the Greek text, is the word tabernacle. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. Think of that when you're thinking about the tabernacle in chapter 26. So this is the interpretation of the coming of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle of God. Think about that. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle of God. When you look at the Old Testament and you see this tabernacle, and you see what it represents, the holiness of God, Jesus Christ fulfilled all of that. He is that tabernacle. He is the very presence of the holy, holy, holy God. So he's the sacred place where heaven comes down to earth so that we could look upon God. Remember what he told Philip? Philip, why are you still questioning? If you've seen me, you've seen God. Yeah, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. Exactly. He's the tabernacle. He's the very dwelling of the Most High God, Holy God, here on earth. 
Now, unlike the first tabernacle that we just looked at, Jesus is not made of silver and gold, linen and wool, and skins that are stretched over posts. But he is made of flesh and bone, skin and bone. But he came to be our representative as well as our substitute. Remember, in the Old Testament tabernacle, they needed the high priest. He's their representative. He needed a sacrifice. And, of course, they did that every year, as well as all the other sacrifices they offered. Jesus came as the great high priest, so he's our representative, but he also was the sacrifice itself. So he sacrificed himself as the great high priest. And the beauty of all of that is that he died once for all. There's no more repetition. Praise God, there's no repetition. Praise God, we don't have to go and make yearly sacrifices. And of course, I want to make it very clear, I know you know this, but just uh, by way of emphasizing, that when Jesus came in the form of man, he still maintained his deity. Jesus was still God. It's impossible for God not to be God, right? So, yes, he was 100% man. And when he died, it was his human flesh that died. But while he was dying, he was still God, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Isn't that awesome? Amazing. The very ones that were crucifying, he gave them life as he was dying. He's still God. He's the sacrifice. He is the one, the God-man who is our representative. He's the tabernacle. And because of that, <clears throat> we have this privilege of coming into his presence. So it was as the God-man that he was crucified, and his body was torn by the nails of our sins. And as Jesus hung on the cross, suffering and dying, he paid the price. But something miraculous happened when he died, and we see it in the Gospels. Okay, think about this. Uh, we've, been, we've been talking about the tabernacle, but when we come to the Gospels, they have the temple. And the temple was a permanent tabernacle, if you will. It had the Holy of Holies, still, had the, <clears throat> still built the same way, in a sense, and it still had the curtain. Uh, by the way, that curtain, uh, according to the Talmud, that curtain was four inches thick. And uh, they had to pick that sucker up 15 feet to hang it. And it, uh, they said it took about 100 men to move that curtain. It was so thick and heavy. Okay, So it's not like a man went up there and just decided, I'm going to tear this thing apart. Not happening. Okay, Four inches thick? That's a Talmud. Some have estimated up to six inches. But when he died on that cross, do you remember what happened to that curtain? It tore down from top to bottom. That, again, I know we've mentioned it, but do you realize how crucial that is? From top to bottom. No man could do this. But it was ripped open top to bottom because God opened up the way. Now, Jesus died on the cross. You're one of the priests working in the holy place, the first room. And all of a sudden you look and this thing splits open. Can you imagine the panic? I don't know. I think I'd be flying out that. Whoa. I'd be running. Terrified. Can you imagine? You're doing your stuff and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this thing just splits open. I can't imagine the panic that went through these priests. I can't imagine the shock. Because they probably never saw the inside. And all of a sudden... It's, it's exposed. Wow. 
Here is the presence of God. I can't imagine. Just overwhelming. And so the sacred place of God's holy presence was open for all to see. That's why they quickly, as you read, they try to put it back together and try to sew it together. I mean, think about trying to sew this thing. It's It's amazing. But something monumental happened that day in human history. That veil for more than a thousand years that separated God's people from God's presence ripped open. Indicating what? Indicating that we now have access. We now have presence where? Right into the very presence of God. Remember Hebrews 4, 14, 16. We come to the throne of grace. Right? We come to the throne of grace because that veil has been ripped apart. There's no more veil because of what Jesus Christ did. So now we have free access. Think about what the Israelites wanted for all those thousands of years and couldn't do. We have free access every moment of every day. We have access to the throne room of God in His very presence. If you don't feel privileged, if you don't feel honored, then you don't have a heartbeat. absolutely stunning the way was open and that's why I believe when you look at the the gospel when you look at the book of Acts and Paul started to preach in the book of Acts you read that many of the priests came to a saving knowledge of Christ many of the priests came to a saving knowledge of Christ you know why? (laughs) they saw it happen Paul's preaching this gospel the true priest who died and paid for the uh, penalty they saw it and that's why they repented. They saw it. Can you imagine how ecstatic it must have been for them then, knowing that I used to work in there, blocked off from it. Now, free access. Absolutely stunning. So God opened the curtain. And basically when God, I say open, ripped the curtain apart. But when he did that, he invited them in. He invited us in. So it's not that he just opened the door. He says, come on in. I love that. Before the curtain was up, you have to stay out. Ripped it open. Come on in. Come on in. Is there any better place to be than to be in the very throne room of God? And so we no longer have a barrier. That barrier was there from back in the time of Moses up until the time of Christ. There was a barrier. We no longer have that barrier. It is now a permanent open door to fellowship with God. The very thing that our lives, our, our, our hearts and souls long for, God has provided freely through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that we now have free access. The very thing we desperately desire, we have free access. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, we come to God. We have nothing else. There is, and I agree with you, uh, I do believe that, the, you, you know, they say the universe goes on and on. No, it doesn't. The universe is not infinite. God is infinite. Right? So there is an end somewhere out there, whatever it is. Uh, and then you always hear what's beyond it? God. God. That's all I could answer. And he gave us access into his very presence now. And we don't have to go to the end of the universe to see God. We have him right here, right now, in his very presence. And so that way is open. It was open 2,000 years ago, still open today. And this is the only way for sinners to face God. We have to go through that curtain that was torn. And it was torn by his death on the cross. He paid that price. He gave that sacrifice. He was our representative, and he was our substitute. And I want to talk about being our substitute next week because it's so critical. Just to let you know, uh, I, the reason why I want to talk about that is it's unbelievable today in so-called evangelical circles how many people are denying the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's incredible. They actually are saying that it is evil to think that Jesus Christ is our substitute and that God punished him because that would make God um, uh, the divine child abuser. And believe me, when I tell you, and we'll talk about it next week, that's just a fourth day. It's just so sad. But he was our substitute. And as our substitute, the curtain was open. We now have access because of our substitute, because of our representative. So I boldly declare Jesus Christ was our substitute. God did punish him. He did open up the curtain. And God said, come on in. Come on in. And my prayer, my hope is that we take advantage of that. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. So his body was that curtain that basically opened up the way and God says, enter in. Enter in. So we always have immediate access to God through Jesus Christ. And I know many times we look at this and say that this is the gospel, and it is. But we need to understand that the gospel is for us every day. Too often we limit the gospel to justification, the day that I was converted, and that's it. No, this is every day for us. Okay, every day. Don't ever think that the gospel is simply for lost people to get them to repent, and that's the end of it. The gospel is every day. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died, rose again, opened up the way so we have access to him. You and I need that access every moment of every day. Not just when we got saved, but every moment of every day we need that access. And Christ did it. So please don't limit the death of Christ simply to the fact that, hey, I'm converted. It goes way beyond that. That's just the beginning. So we always have immediate access to God through Christ. And whenever we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ... We find everything we need. Everything we need. A lot of people are in a panic today because of what's going on. I get asked many times, how do you deal with it? Simple. My God reigns. My God reigns. I mean, I could get into a huge discussion, but simply put, my God reigns. It's not Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or any of these people. My God sits on the throne. He reigns. And I have access to this God because my king opened up that curtain and invited me in. So now I go into his presence and I pray and seek his face. He gives me contentment and joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. And all these people, they either repent or they're going to bow the knee one day. And I wouldn't want to be in their shoes and for all the money in the world. 
sounds simplistic, but it's reality. That's how I deal with it. I come into the very presence of God because he invited me in and he invited you in. I hope that you would take the time to really consider the stunning reality, the absolute amazing stunning reality that we have access to the holy, holy, holy God. Don't let it become something that you've heard goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, 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 I know that. Let it grab hold of your heart every day. Wake up knowing, wow, I have access into the very throne room of the one who rules the universe. Not only do I have access, I have an invitation. He invited me in. I pray, and I prayed for you before I even taught this class, God grant that we would take this reality seriously. I know, <clears throat> I know that God created us in His image, that we would know Him, and this is how He did it. That we would know Him through His Son, through the sacrifice that opened up the way. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. We don't have to walk in fear. We can walk in confidence because we walk in the presence of the Most High and Holy God. Take advantage of it. Go into His presence constantly. <clears throat> I do a lot of driving on my job, and I don't know about you, but one of the biggest struggles that the enemy knows I have is patience. I really struggle. And there are times I have to stop and say, God, I'm so sorry. And the way I'm trying to learn to control it is to go into his presence and say, okay, when I'm driving, I'm in the presence of God. It gives me a different perspective on how I see people. So what what I've started doing is I started praying for people in front of me. No, I have, and I pray for their salvation. I do. God, if they're not saved, no, I do. I pray. if they're not saved, God, save their souls so that they would have access. I don't pray that they would speed up or whatever. God, save their souls. Why not pray for them? I don't know them, and I don't know if they're saved, but God, why not pray for their salvation? And who knows? One day when we get there, we're going to look around and see people that we prayed for at a red light, and they came to Christ because we prayed for them. Wouldn't that be awesome? And we can do that because we have access So don't allow the tabernacle just to be a boring chapter. Look at it and realize, wow, look at the holiness and the majesty of God. And it was closed off to them. They could not see. They could not go in. We have access. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to go in. We go in right here, right now. I don't know about you, but that excites me. What glorious grace. Any questions or comments? I did a lot of talking. I apologize. I get caught up. Any questions or comments on this? Yes. When you're talking about representatives, these are representatives. Of course, that our human birth, every human birth, Adam's our representative, right? Mm-hmm. And then... yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this passage, this chapter, that tells us about the tabernacle and how you came to dwell on this earth amongst men. And Lord, we thank you that we no longer have to look to a particular dwelling. And we thank you that we're no longer closed off because of a veil. We thank you that you gave us a representative and the sacrifice And he paid the price so that the curtain was torn and you invite us into your presence. 
And Lord, even now, as we are praying, we come before your throne because of what our representative did. So thank you. Help us throughout this week to contemplate this reality that we have this access to your throne room. And Lord, even as we go to the next service, prepare our hearts, even now, to be overwhelmed again as we hear the truth preached, as we sing songs of praise. Help us to be stunned at this reality that we are, in fact, in your very presence. And we have this blessed, blessed uh, privilege to praise you, to worship you, to fellowship with you. God, please don't ever allow us to think lightly of this. Help us to enter into your presence with a sense of seriousness, knowing that you are the holy God, and in your grace you opened up the door for us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.